Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. So now I'm in the back room in TSA and they say, we have to do an intensive. And I'm like, oh God. It's so funny because it's not even a language barrier that caused the misunderstanding. It was just pure ignorance on your part. And I said, can I substitute out the ranch for mustard? They're like, oh, sorry, uh, we don't have mustard actually. And I'm like, you're a sandwich shop. What's up everybody? Welcome back to another week of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. And today we have my friend from Bali. His name's Drew Casey, and he's going to talk to us about the craziest stories he's had going through airport security. And as somebody that has visited dozens of countries over the last five years and pretty much spent almost that entire time abroad, he has a lot of crazy ones he's going to share. So I'm really excited to get that in with him. And we're also going to dive into the biggest difference personality-wise between him and Evan, which is that one of the two is a massive ca- coffee snob and the other one buys cups and then throws them away. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I, when we started this podcast, I made a promise that we wouldn't have people on just to talk about their like crazy, funny travel stories. Because I think in general, you can't relate to someone unless you really know them. You don't care about their stories. But in this case, TSA is something everyone can relate to. It's a common frustration all travelers share. And Drew's story is absolutely hilarious and harrowing and... Uh, even pretty gripping, honestly. So we can't wait to get into that. But first, we're going to get right into hot takes. Tim, I got a few questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Number one, today in the interview, we talk a little bit about uh, getting a foreign citizenship, uh, applying for citizenship in other countries. Uh, Drew's looking for his Italian uh, citizenship. So Tim, what country would you become a citizen of if you could and why? Oh, that's a tough one because... I. It depends really like if I'm going to be in that place all the time or if I'm going to still be traveling frequently because I think like Mexico would be an easy one. My wife and I have talked repeatedly about moving to Mexico and and plan to do so in the coming years once our our coming child is a little bit older. Oh, that's a revelation. I didn't know that. So you're going to relocate permanently to Mexico. Permanently being for a few years, probably permanently not necessarily being for the rest of our lives. But we want to give our our child the multicultural experience of of uh, living in a in a very different culture. So we do plan to do that. Beyond that, I would think that the country I would want to become a citizen of, uh, like I want to choose something out there. I don't just want to say Canada, though. I would move to BC in a heartbeat. I I would probably have to pick something in in Europe. You know, Andorra is a place I've always wanted to go and potentially live. I, I would say Andorra or Spain. That's an interesting one. It's two. It's two, two things to consider, I guess. There's there's identifying with the country that you're getting their nationality, so having a, a particular affinity for that culture, and then strategically wanting uh, a powerful passport. So, getting any uh, citizenship in any EU country is strategically, no matter what it is, it's great because that means you can travel freely throughout all of Europe. But, you know, if you have a particular like affinity for the Italian culture, you, you know, you're, you're, you're Italian, you might want to be an Italian citizen. So it's, it's different. But yeah, other than that, Andorra is a good one. 
I mean, you know, like the, the thing with Spain or Andorra is, you know, I speak a bit of Spanish, so that would be somewhat easier, although I it's Latin Spanish that I am more familiar with. But and Andorra obviously is a, a mountainous country that is known for its its uh, outdoor recreation. So culturally, I think I would adapt pretty well there. Would you we talked in the interview about going to a new place, you kind of have a uh, the ability to turn over a new leaf and reinvent yourself. Moving to Mexico, how would Mexico, Tim, be different from Colorado, Tim? And please answer this question in Spanish. Oh, man. Um, Mexico, Tim. Mexico, 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 Tim. I don't I don't know if I know future tense Spanish well enough. You can do it in present tense. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to do it in Spanish. Um, that dude, the Mexican embassy is on this call. They're not going to let you in. Like, you just fraudulently said you speak Spanish, so. Right, right, right. All right. Well, we look uh, we look forward to coming to No Blackout Dates half from Mexico. No Blackout Dates in Spanish is Sin Fechas Bloquedas. So maybe we'll do a special episode. I just watched a Spanish episode for our massive Spanish listenership. Sin Fechas Bloquedas. Keep an eye out. Next question. You are about to take a van trip through the Pacific Northwest. Would you ever live in a van? You know, I don't. I don't know. Definitely not permanently. Would you ever kind of nomad, like, no, I don't know if, it, you know, listeners or you, Tim, have seen Nomad Land, but Nomad Land esque, uproot your life, move it into a van in a previous life, because not when you have a, your, your daughter is born, that makes sense. But if you were single or just you and your wife, would you do that? Potentially. I potentially would do that, yes. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I would, would do it for more than a few months, probably. Uh, I don't want to get into like a movie review here, but watching that movie Nomadland where these basically these middle-aged to older people live by themselves in their vans and travel around the Midwest and the Southwest, it just struck me as really depressing. The whole tone and vibe of that movie was so depressing. Yeah, you know, honestly, like the vibe I got from that movie was just not what I was expecting. I was expecting it to be more of a modern take on on van life uh and i don't know why i thought that because obviously francis mcdormand is not 22 years old but it just seemed to me like i was expecting like when i think of van life i think of like the type of content we publish at matador where it's like a young hip couple traveling in a van and waking up in new places every day and working on their laptop and and being very outdoorsy and this kind of thing and and for in the movie the characters are basically just Older people, many of whom have lost their longtime significant other and don't really have anything going on in their life, uh, don't have a lot of money and are just kind of barely scraping by. And I, I guess the movie in itself kind of calls out probably some of the bullshit of the perceived van life. Because, you know, you get on social media or you read travel publications and you see this glorious side of it and how beautiful it is to be able to open the back door of your van to the beach every day or whatever. But the the actual life of it, I think, is is pretty rough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I expected the movie to be inspiring. Like, oh, yeah, people are going to be like traveling around in van. And it's not something I ever I ever would consider doing, honestly. It's just not my thing. But I expected it to be inspiring. It wasn't. It was depressing as fuck. And... After the movie was over, I was like, I didn't like that. I didn't enjoy it. it. Didn't put me in a good mood. But now, upon further reflection, and after what you just said, I actually do think I kind of liked it because it did debunk this idea that 
van life and like nomad life is just this glamorous thing. It's like, it's really not. I mean, in certain for younger people in different circumstances, it can be, but it's not, I mean, dropping everything and putting your whole life into a small van, especially by yourself. Like, yeah, there's an element of adventure, but there's also an element of just loneliness and isolation and waywardness and, and being disconnected from like what's going on in the world. And I don't know, it's, it, it was depressing, but now I'm kind of thinking it was depressing in maybe a good and in kind of an enlightening way. Right. And you know, you, you just got me thinking with this last uh, statement that if we do have, if we have Drew back on again in the future, because, you know, he, he's really good at painting a good vivid picture. We'll talk about some of the things about, you know, digital nomad life that aren't as glamorous as they come across uh, and because there there's plenty and and he would be a good person to elaborate on that. All right. Well, that's it for me. Okay. I got two for you, Evan, on this side. So the first one is, uh, is food related. So from the perspective of somebody who's lived on a Western diet, you know, which both of you and I have, I'm curious, what do you consider to be the most versatile condiment on each continent that you've been to? Wow, what a question. Versatile condiments. I had to write this down in my phone. It's a long one in my phone. And I was because I don't yeah. want to forget it. I had to write it down. <laughs> I'm gonna say mustard. I think mustard is an underappreciated and underrepresented condiment. I want advocacy for mustard. I want mustard to have more of a voice. What do you think about mustard, Tim? Because I've heard and witnessed that mustard isn't really a big thing thing in the in the in the, the Colorado. I went to a sandwich shop. Here's a story that I'll tell you from yesterday. Went to a sandwich shop and I said, "Can I substitute out the ranch for mustard?" They're like, "Oh, sorry. Uh, we don't have mustard actually." What? That's crazy. And I'm like, "You have curry sauce and ranch, but you don't have mustard? You're a sandwich shop." Like, should I do I, I feel like I have to call like the Department of Health. Like, what's going on here? And then Apparently, I've talked to a few people about this. Apparently, mustard isn't isn't as uh, ubiquitous in Colorado as it is in other parts of the country, or you know, back east where I'm used to. Have you found this to be true, or is that just total nonsense? I love mustard, and I have probably six different kinds of mustard in my fridge right now. But I will say that Colorado doesn't have the deli culture that East Coast cities do, so you're not going to find like a plain yellow mustard all the time, like you would out east, or like a Dijon or something like that. Yeah, so to answer your question. I think mustard goes well on almost everything, whether it's a spicy mustard on any kind of sandwich or even just the the classic yellow mustard on a hot dog, on just turkey. Make a Thanksgiving turkey, throw some mustard on it. Uh, Irish boiled dinner, throw some mustard on it. I think mustard goes on pretty much anything. But yeah, I'm trying to think of any other condiments. And the only thing that comes to mind is that in Macedonia, every time I got pizza, they would give you a side of hot sauce as if that was like a common thing. And I never even considered really doing that before, but I would put hot sauce on this pizza and it was really, really, really good. So Macedonia, hot sauce, pizza, great combo. Right. I mean, I'm a hot sauce guy anyway, uh, particularly Sriracha, but I mean, I, I think of when I eat Asian, you know, a lot of different styles of Asian food, maybe that's Vietnamese, Chinese, Thai, I, I like hoisin. I think hoisin is an underutilized sauce, and I think it's particularly good on noodle dishes. So it fits well with the the food of those three countries in particular. Uh, sriracha as well. I think sriracha is very versatile on everything because it's good on pizza. It's good on noodles. It's good on sandwiches. It's good on eggs. 
Like you can put that on everything. So I would say in 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 North America, sriracha tops my list. Hoisin for Asia. In South America, I would have to go with like a like some kind of like a like a like a picadillo sauce, something that you can dip some empanadas in or something like that, uh, or, or some of the other you know bread pastries because they're really big on on pastries down there. So in my experience, anyway, which is very limited. All right. Well, moving on. My next question is, uh, you know, when you're looking at at food or maybe like a supplement or anything, when you see a label like number one pharmacist recommended, do you immediately think it's crap, like the label and why they're saying that? Or do you actually like take value from that? Because when I see these labels, I to me, it just screams like a hundred year old marketing campaign. Like who believes bland statements like that. Like, I don't think the modern generations take anything from that. And I think it's something that worked in like the 1930s. I mean, I wouldn't say that I take it at face value, but I don't think it it makes me inherently not want to buy the product. If it says number one pharmacist recommended, what it makes me think of is I wonder what the number three pharmacist recommended is that they're just not telling us. Yeah. What does he recommend? You know, that the product right next to it, that doesn't say anything about pharmacists, but in the poll, the, the grand poll of polls that they do a pharmacist every year. It was like number six on the list, like number six pharmacist recommended like the four out of five dentists recommend Colgate. What about the other dentist? If you're the other dentist, if you're the, if you're the fifth dentist, please let us know, please come on the show because I'm curious. I this contrarian dentist that is always holding out for something better. And I respect that four out of five dentists settle for less. One out of five dentists always strives for better. We want to talk to you. Right. Right. I agree. And, and and I will also agree with you that it doesn't necessarily kill the deal for me. I just think like I, I have never been persuaded by a label like that. So I'm just wondering if anybody actually is. Well, I, I want to make this tie in as well. Real New York pizza. We talked about this a long time ago with Nino. Any restaurant that says or any pizzeria not in New York that has on its sign real New York City pizza Classic New York pizza, that's an automatic no for me. Yeah. That's right. that's the food version of pharmacist recommend number one pharmacist recommended. If you have to tell me that you're real New York City pizza, there is no way you are real New York City pizza or anything closely resembling it. You let your pizza speak for yourself. Well, yeah, like Nino said, if there there's a reason why they left New York, it's probably because they couldn't hack it with the pizza scene in New York. <laughs> Yeah, according to Nino, if you're a pizza guy and you're not in New York, you're just an absolute loser and your pizza sucks. So Yeah. So if anyone missed that episode, go back and check it out. It's our second episode. It's called the Pizza Episode. Uh, hilarious conversation with Nino. If you're a pizza person, check it out because it's great and he's got some crazy insights. Uh, and we can talk we can talk about pizza all day. So we're gonna cut it there. All right. Well, on that, we'll get into it with Drew and we will see you on the other side. All right, we're here with Andrew Casey, uh, hello, my, hello. my longtime Bali bud from 2017. How you doing, man? I can't believe it was that long ago, actually, to be honest. It's it's crazy that it has been four years, and like I know we've noted this before, but of all the people that I met during my time there, I think you and your partner Aaron are the only two that I've stayed in touch with and and certainly the only two that I've actually seen in person since then. Yeah, we gr- grabbed beers in Kansas City, Missouri. 
from Bali to Kansas City and, and tropical all- paradise in the middle of the United States. Kansas right. City is the Bali of the Midwest. I think it is. It's not just the city of fountains, guys. The city of confusing hotel listings, as I found out <laughs> on that trip. But uh, then on, onwards, uh, onwards to Medellin, Colombia, which actually leads me into the first question I had for you. So I've seen you in person three times, once very briefly and twice for you know a little bit more extended periods of time. But each one of those times has been on a different continent. And so I'm curious about what are your thoughts on on this travel lifestyle and having so many relationships that are, are like that, where it's, it's a virtual keep in touch and then a random encounter in a faraway place every time. Yeah. I mean, it, like, you know, like you said, is back then, you know, we, you know, we were having beers in Bali and then you just kind of pick up where you left off too. It's uh, you know, and then all of a sudden we're in Medellin and it felt like yesterday that we were having, uh, you know, beers in Bali and going down a, a probably a fairly polluted river in a river raft, which is probably where I got sick. <laughs> you know? From drinking the polluted water. Yeah. Scooping it right into your hand. Yeah. 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 Being encouraged to go underneath that waterfall and just open your mouth, man. It, it is interesting that it's kind of like pressing pause on a relationship when you meet people traveling and then you kind of reconnect with them somewhere else. It's like, it doesn't, you're right in that it doesn't feel weird like oh like we became friends in bali and now we're in in colombia like it's just like you're picking up from where the last chapter left off almost yeah well i mean you know it's the shared experience too right of of the excitement and everybody's kind of in in a new land and um, i think one of the cool things of the the uh digital nomad which i still we got to come up with something new for that phrase there's nothing better it's not the worst name. i hate it but no you know it's anyway um but the, something about that community is really cool right is that um everybody is it's like it's like when you went to college right it's the easiest place to make friends in when you go to college because everybody's in in a similar situation of like man if i don't if i don't make friends with somebody i'm eating alone yeah i, I think one thing that's interesting about particularly you know longer term travel and and being away from the people that are always in your bubble at home is that you have, you almost have a, a vision to kind of recreate yourself as you, as you want to be right. And not just as who you've always been, not, not in like a, a fake, like I'm going to become this, you know, celebrity superhero, social media influencer type person, but like you can kind of leave behind the parts of your life that you didn't want to take forward into the next chapter of your life. And you can really hone in on what it is that you want to focus on. What kind of person did you become in Bali? I became a person that wears these, uh, these like really light wind windbreaker polo shirts. Now i never did that before. (laughs) And now I do it all the time. That, that is the guy you've always wanted to be. Yeah. And that's all I've known you as Tim. He used to wear like, suits like full a full-on like black tie get up every no day way. wake up in the morning throw on a suit and doesn't not not even to go to work just to just to feel good about himself <laughs> and now he's all he's he's a bali bro now <laughs> that was me bali bro there you go uh, it happened great. it happened but but you know i i remember uh, this is kind of weird but i remember playing the oregon trail video game as a kid and there was a quote in the game that was like the only way to really know if you like somebody is to travel with them. And it's it's true, I think. It's totally true. Yeah, but then what happens when you travel with, you have your lifelong friends, then you travel with all of them and you realize you hate all of them. 
that's a bummer, huh? You leave them in the river. Yeah, you realize that the, maybe you don't know those people. We we had a, an episode that was completely dedicated to debunking uh, digital nomads and just pretty much shitting all over digital nomads. Um, and I'll ask this question to you. Is it possible to talk, to be a digital nomad without talking about being a digital nomad? For, for a little context, the reason... The reason uh, we ask that question is because you see on social media, Instagram in particular, all of these like dream looks like how to quit your job and become a digital nomad. And then you see the photo of the person working on the beach, which I've never once worked on a beach, you know? Yeah, you know, I really do try to not say the DM word as often as possible. I try to avoid it at all costs. So if people say, oh, well, what, do you, what are you doing? I just travel. You know, yeah, I just try. I travel and work. Yeah, there you go. You you don't you don't like flip flip your hair back and flip your hair back, strike a pose, and say in a wistful tone, I'm "Digital nomad." <laughs> exactly. So, part of the reason, Drew, why I wanted to have you on here, you know, is because you told me a while ago, I believe that you have had some pretty interesting stories of going through customs and and dealing with passport stamps, and I I'm trying mm-hmm. to recall exactly what it was you told me. And I'm hoping you can fill us in. So walk us through a couple of your crazy times dealing with customs. It all started. <laughs> it all started about three years ago. Um, you know, what I have learned is that Border Patrol doesn't like certain algorithmic countries, I guess. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they just don't like countries in general, as we know. Um, but I was traveling back from... Uh, Turkey about, I guess it was, it was through, that was probably about three years ago. Um, and you know, basically I'd gone from the U S to Costa Rica, uh, to back to the U S U S to Mexico, Mexico to Miami. Then I had gone back to Europe, then went to Turkey anyway. So I, I, I make my way back to the U S um, and I am uh, flying back through London. So I, I get back, I get to London. I'm hanging out in the lounge. I'm like, ah, I'll wait, I'll wait till the you know kind of end. I was, didn't really need to board all that quickly. So I get there. I'm kind of last one getting on. Lady takes my ticket, scans it. Bam, 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 bam. Red, red starts flashing. I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> what's going and this on? Is at, this is at the gate to get on the plane. This is at the gate. This is at the gate to get on the plane from London uh, to, I think, Charlotte. It was my connection into the U.S. And she's like, oh, um, Andrew, uh, he, he, he's here for you. And I, I look over and there's a guy in a suit. I mean, this is like out of a movie. Suit, tie, slightly <laughs> overweight, uh, you know, with a dossier in his, in his hand. I'm like, ah, oh, shit. Oh shit. This is, I knew it. I just had a feeling. I was like, this is going to be bad. Um, this is also, also keep in mind, this was like height of, um, very poor relations with, you know, Trump and, and the rest of the world and particularly Turkey at that time, there was a lot of kind of heating up conflict between the countries. So like shit. Okay. So this guy comes over and he's like, you Andrew? I'm like, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you know, what were you doing in Turkey? Well, I was seeing the country, <laughs> you know, unwisely, if I can give any advice and if, 
Department of Homeland Security. By, by the way, this, this is a U.S. Department of Homeland Security at the gate in London. If they come and ask you and, you know, if, if, if they start talking to you, don't be a smart ass and say that you were seeing the country and you should probably see it, too. Is that what you said? That's what I said. I did say it. You should you should have just said fomenting insurrection with a completely oh straight face. God, with a that, straight face. That would have yeah. not. I just love uh, the word fomenting, and I think people don't use it enough. So any excuse to use the word fomenting? Oh man, it it you know it it hurt already. I can't imagine how bad it would would have hurt. You know, he's like um, he's like, well, what were you doing there? He's like, well, I was you know with a friend. He's like, why are you traveling alone? No friends. Like, Look, man, I was just. Yeah. And he's like, why, you know, what do you do to be able to travel like this? <laughs> Alone? Just unlikable? People don't like me? Bad personality? <laughs> yeah, right, right. He's like, what do you do? You know, what do you do for a living that that allows you to, that, that you're able to do this? Because he saw my passport, you know, there's been gone forever. So, well, I, you know, I, I, I own a, a company, a nutrition company and whatnot. And he's like, hmm. And a photographer, right? Damn, so he had obviously researched you a little bit. Man, he had a full-on dossier. I'm not kidding. He had a dossier. He's got his cell phone out that has all this information. He's scrolling pages. So we go on and he and and uh you know he asks who I was traveling with and whatnot. So he ends up letting me on the plane. And this is just because you're coming from Turkey? Is that that's the only reason that you can think of? Coming from Turkey, man. Yeah. I did ask him, I said, you know what? what's going on here? And he said, well, it could, you know, one, you're coming from a country of interest. So, okay. He said, two is you've been going to other countries of interest. Uh, Indonesia is, is considered a country of interest. Um, I, I guess because it's a Muslim country, uh, unfortunately, but do you think this means he, the guy, these countries are just on the guys like travel bucket list, super interested in Indonesia, <laughs> right, real interested sure. in Turkey. Like, tell me all about it. I just wonder if there's like what percentage of and here we're going to use the term again here, but what percentage of digital nomads or frequent international travelers encounter something like this? Because I've never been through anything nearly like that, but I was stopped coming back from Ireland, uh, flying back to New York, and it was right after I left Colombia. It would have been like six weeks later. And I, I know I've maybe been to five or six countries that year. And they all they did was I was with my wife, actually, and she got through just fine. And I got pulled aside. They made me open up my laptop and turn it on. And like, they didn't go through anything I had on the laptop, but I had to show it to them. And they did the same thing with my phone. And they like took everything out of my pack. And like, meanwhile, like this isn't their problem, but we were like late, late getting to the gate in at the Dublin airport. And, and, and they never gave me any reason. And again, it was a U.S. customs person, even though I was in Ireland. How frustrated did you get? How like irate did you get at the TSA guys? You yell at them saying you're about to miss your flight? No, but I was being a dick for sure because I was stressed that we were going to miss the flight, you know, and my wife was like already sitting there at the gate, like wondering where I'm at, I'm sure. I, yeah, I wish they had left me left me alone, um, you know, like 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 they did for you, Tim. That was nice of them. But but it wasn't over. It wasn't over. Um, after the 12 hour flight getting off, I, I woke up and I'm like, Man, you know, this is going one of two ways when I go through to uh, global entry is either I'm going to sail through like I usually do, like global entry does, or they're going to stop me. <clears throat> well, unfortunately, they stopped me. So I get up to the global entry 
uh, kiosk, put in my, you know, to do the face scan and the fingerprints. And they give you a print on global entry. They, they give you a printout and usually you just hand it to the uh, immigration officer and you go through. I get the printout and it has a big X on my face. Shit. <laughs> Shit. So I go up and they, I hand it and the guy looks at it, looks up. Escort. He like yells it out. Yes. He yells it out. Escort. I'm like, Shit. again, there's a lot of shits going on in my head and I'm like, Oh my God. So they, uh, two two border patrol come over, escort me to secondary to which I get to sit with um, all the other people that they're harassing, which was, um, you know, quite sad to see in my opinion of the welcome committee that a lot of these people coming to our country are uh, given. Out of curiosity, what was the, the racial makeup of those other people? I think you can guess, but it was primarily Muslim. Okay. Well, because you're not. So I, no, I, was, I know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. You can't generalize what they're, what they're after. Uh, because yeah, I definitely don't, you know, I'm, I'm, white Irish Italian, um, American, you know? So, uh, you know, sitting in there was, it was actually really, really brutal hearing these guys just, you know, berate the, you know, these guys who are just literally coming to visit their cousin and go to a basketball game. Um, so anyway, I sit there, I, fortunately my layover was like five hour layover. So I sit there for probably a good hour and a half. They take me back in a back room and they start interrogating me. Like asking me, you know, again, the same questions. What do you do? How are you affording this? Um, looking at looking at, our, at my websites, like to make sure that it was legit. Uh, re-asking questions. I was in there for a good hour. They were just grilling. You know, I, like I said, I own a nutrition company. And so I start telling him about, about the supplement we make. And so I start selling the guy on the supplement. By the end, he's buying the supplement, which was great. That was like one one good thing. Um, so he was he was sold on that. So then we we get out of there, and they then they go through my bags, um, piece by piece, just like you, Tim. Look at the computer, turn it on, phone, all that. Uh, that the guy that guy was nice enough. So I finally get out. I'm like, okay, well this is this is we're good, we're good. So now I've got a connection, right, within the U.S. What airport was that at? This is, uh, this is Charlotte. Oh, Charlotte. Okay. All right. And so I'm thinking, well, this is going to go one of two ways. Either I'm going to go TSA pre, everything's going to go well, or it's not going to go well. So I look at my ticket. It doesn't have the TSA pre on it. And I'm like, ah, shit. So I go back to a kiosk to try to reprint my thing. Won't let me re reprint a, a boarding pass. So I go up to security. I present my thing. They do the scan. And you know those little green lights that usually flash? You just got like a glaring red siren. It was red sirens, man. I'm not kidding. It was like blinking red loud. So they closed down an entire lane in the TSA just for me. So like all the people behind you had to move over to the next lane? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the guy is a complete jerk. Power trip. Just... Not friendly. And I'm just like, hey, man, I, you know, I, okay, sure. If you start this process, you cannot leave. Do you agree? I'm like, well, do I have a, I mean, I got to fly, I got to get home. Do I have a choice? No. 
<laughs> you either you either do it or you don't fly. Okay. Well, then, yeah, I guess so. Here we go. He said, he said, you will be subjected to every form of security that we have twice. That's what he said, twice. And at the end, you must answer three riddles posed by a wizard. Yeah, and exactly. you can cross the bridge. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'm like, you know, at this point, my mouth is dry. You know, like you're nervous. You're like, yeah, you know, like I got nothing to hide. But what if, you know, like, I don't know. And so I'm like, okay, okay. And I'm exhausted. You know, this is now, I think, you know, hour 17 coming back. And so we go through, he has me walk through the metal detector twice. I go through the, you know, like that near uh, x-ray, x-ray thing twice. Then they take the, um, uh, they do pat down as well, twice, just for good measure. Um, and then, you know, the, you know, the little swab things they do for the, um, like the explosives testing. Jesus Christ, man. And I'm just like, man, I got a bad feeling. So they swab down my stuff, my hands, whatever. And they put, they put the, they put the, the little swab in the machine. Beep, 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 beep. I'm like, no, you gotta be fucking kidding me. No, no. What, why? And what kind of explosives were you carrying? Exactly. 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 I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm like the, and he's like, you know, of course now it's really code red. So they get their friends out and now they're going through it. I'm like, dude, just swab me again, man. Like, and they're like, well, we can't do that. We have to recalibrate the machine. So now I'm like waiting for this. They do that. And they say, well, you got to come with me. So now I'm in the back room in TSA and they say, we have to do an intensive. And I'm like, oh God. I'd been without my partner for several weeks, but I wasn't that lonely, you know? So they take me, they take me back and, um, and they do like, like, I mean, they get up in there guys. This was not pleasant. It was very traumatic. It was truly, it really was details. God, Evan, man, you want to know you, you dirty, you dirty man. Evan's glad he's recording this. People want to know. It's the voice of the people here. Right. So yeah, no, they, 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 it was like, so the original pat down, they used the back of their hand and guy or guy around this time. And they, they, they told me they were going to be using, you know, like full hand, man. I'm like, great. So they, they like go all the way up and they grab and they look around, not in interior, but like they grab up there. I'm like, man, this is just awful. I, I'm in a, you know, I'm coming home. I'm an American citizen. I've got global entry. You know, I have provable, you know, business. I have import record. I mean, you could, you could go, the list goes on. Like, right. I can't imagine what they do to somebody of even slight true interest, you know? So anyway, so I go through this and this guy is still major power trip. And they finally say, okay, what could have triggered this? And he says, well, a lot of things. He's like, but what countries have you visited recently? So, well, Turkey, Costa Rica, Mexico. He said, well, he's like, you know, all of these are depending on, especially on how you do it and one way travel especially one-way tickets. They really don't like one-way tickets and the pattern of which you go to them. And I said, well, man, I'm going to Columbia next week. Is this going to be worse? <laughs> and he said, oh man, you're in big trouble. He's like, you're screwed. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious that they, it kind of seems like this was like an algorithmic thing that made this happen. It wasn't like there was one guy sitting, you know, in Washington, DC, like we need to be watching Andrew Casey. This guy's <laughs> not up to any good. It was like an algorithmic thing that made it happen. 
I'm, I'm pretty, I'm almost positive and convinced that that's, that's the case. And, and maybe, you know, they just keep checking you and checking you and checking you until you finally give up and get a redress number. And then somebody, an actual human being looks at it. So do you hate TSA now? Like, what are your opinions on TSA? I think that the best interest is at heart. I really do. You know, like, look, I, I, I don't think that they're, I don't think it's evil or anything. I think that, that all of it is best, best interest. I think that policies, just like most government things that are big are, are, are whack and that they need to have more human oversight of it. Like if this happens, maybe that should trigger like a really, you know, human looking at it and say, oh yeah, this probably doesn't make much sense. Yeah. I mean, Hey, for every one Andrew Casey, they catch, they, they catch at least 15 terrorists. I, I, I actually wonder like for how many people they put this through, how many actual dangerous persons of interest do they legitimately catch? Cause that's I what know. I want to know. Uh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be. Yeah. A fraction of a percent. I would think. I mean, it's funny. At least you got pulled over for going to countries of interest. It's re- it's better than like, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're going, you're going to these countries that literally no one cares about, like of countries of disinterest. What are you doing there? <laughs> what an idiot. Oh, man. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about visas and the Schengen visa and, and, Kind of your situation, because so you live in Mallorca in Spain, uh, off of Spain, I suppose, to be exact. I, I just want to know what the deal is with the Schengen visa, because the easy, what everyone always says is it's like 180 days out of the year, max. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. But how does that work? And how can you how can you build a home base in a place where you can only be there for half of the year? Uh, for those that aren't familiar with a, what, what Schengen is, <clears throat> So Schengen, there's there's the EU and there's all the European countries within the EU. For simple for simple purposes, I'm going to use um, the UK, even though obviously they're not in the EU anymore. But let's just pretend that Brexit never happened because it's a, it's, it's an easy example. So inside the EU, there's a Schengen region, and that consists of a certain number of countries that have agreed upon freedom of movement. Uh, basically where you don't have to go through an immigration, show your passport, and all of those basically count towards this 180 180 days over the course of a year or 90 days within a 180-day period. So let's say you enter in France. Cool. Boom. You get stamped. Your 90-day clock starts then, and you have 180 days to use 90 days. So let's say you enter France, you stay in France for 30 days, then you go to the UK. Okay, you've used 30 days of your 90. Now that clock stops, but you're in the UK, you're out of the Schengen, or let's say Croatia, out of the Schengen. Now those days are not counted. So let's say you stay for 10 days. Okay, now you're 40 days in, then you go to Spain. You go back in and you go through and now your day's starting again. But your clock started 40 days ago, right? So you've got 140 days now in this rolling period. Um, and you stay another 30 days in Spain. So well, actually, let's, let's say 60. Now you've, you've, you've used up 90 days, but you've actually been in Europe for 100 days because 10 of those of you were in the UK. Now you've got to leave. And you've got to leave for three months. 
And because that 180 day rolling period, right? Then that clock starts again after the 180. So you can divvy these days up, but it does get confusing because it's this rolling number. So we use, there's an online calculator, schengenvisacalculator.com or something like that. There's dashes in there. Just Google it and you'll come up with several. And you can plan out your trip if you're really going like, and you want to maximize the number of days that you're actually in these countries, you can be smart about it and arrange those to be max out your Schengen days all within those Schengen countries, and then go and explore the UK, especially now, right? They're out of the EU. Um, UK, Croatia, Romania, use those, those times as your, your renewal periods, if you want to call it visa run, whatever. Then you can come back into the Schengen again for another 90 days. So my biggest question is uh, housing and how you are able to set up affordable housing for like a couple month period. So say you're doing the visa run, you're trying to, you're leaving the EU for the whatever, the three month period, and you only want to be in a country for a month. Do you just do Airbnbs? Do you get month rentals? How does that work? Yeah. So we always did Airbnbs when we were traveling like full time. Over the last two years, we've had this place in Mallorca um, that we were just using you know, when we could, right? Three months in, three months out, three months in, three months out. So it was basically vacant for six months out of the year. Um, but we always used Airbnbs. Like in between that was Airbnb. Do you think that you'll continue to do this for a while? This kind of three months in, three months out lifestyle? Or do you think you'll settle down? No, we actually just went through the visa process for uh, our Spanish visa. So we can stay... Uh, more permanently, we've got a, we're on a one year visa, which you can then renew for another two years after that. And another two years after that, this is a temporary solution. This, this particular visa for us, because my, I'm fortunate to have a bloodline of Italian heritage. My great grandfather was Italian. So I'm working on my Italian passport and dual citizenship, which obviously that's the golden ticket because I can now become a resident in any EU country once I have a passport. And so can my fiance, once we get married, she will qualify as well. Cool. The last thing I want to clarify, and then we'll move, we'll move into our, our listener questions section is why exactly it was that you guys settled on Mallorca. And if that has a, if Spain in particular has any play into that, as far as the visa or the long-term stay goes, or if it was simply because you love the destination as a place to be. Yeah, no, for us, it was uh, simply the destination that we fell in love with. Um, I I like the Spanish culture of uh, it's definitely more relaxed, tranquilo. <laughs> it's um, it's much calmer. Um, I like having a, a, an American mentality of, go, you know, kind of go get them type mentality, but then... And I, I really noticed the juxtaposition when I go back to the to the U.S. is, you know, I'm much more hyperactive, but I'm not more productive. Here it's like, you know, you, you, they really focus on enjoying time with friends, you know, uh, having dinner parties, fresh food. I love the, the markets of 
accessibility to healthy and um, clean foods. So you've adapted a full full Spanish lifestyle. You're waking up at noon, going to the club at 1 a.m., leaving the club at 8 a.m. No. <laughs> Three, four nights a week, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's where the in-between really comes in is that I am not a late night person at all. All right. Well, we're going to move into our listener question, listener question section, which is a uh, segment of the show where we kind of curate on an ongoing basis questions that listeners submit to us and we pick one that is relevant to the guest. Uh, this one, I think, yes, given, given our time together uh, where we've been and probably your travels in general, I think is pretty relevant. Um, the question is, Whenever I'm traveling, I'm always looking for a good cafe, and I'm always curious to know what people find as a good cafe and what makes just a place to grab coffee and go. And I think that what they're what they're getting at is what what makes someplace a good cafe to spend some time in, or to work in, or to meet friends for a social gathering. What what is that for you? Totally. Well, I am a like self proclaimed coffee snob. I actually for in Europe, there's a website called the European Coffee Trip. And these guys are also major coffee snobs. So they, they had highlighted a, a cafe here in Mallorca called Mistral. Usually I, I find that the good coffee shops also have the good clientele that um, are willing to chat and are regulars. So you start, if you're in a place for a while and you, and you find a shop that you like, you start seeing the regulars and eventually you can you know, pick up a conversation like, oh, hey, I've seen you here a couple of times. Boom, you got a friend. I'm gonna tell a really quick story, which is gonna make you hate me, hate me, Drew. All right. We're not gonna be friends after this, I don't think. Uh, it makes me sound like an absolute idiot. But so I did my grad degree in Scotland. So I lived in Scotland for a year and I was working, you know, when I wanted to do work out of my apartment, I would go to this coffee shop down the street. It was a Turkish coffee shop. And I don't drink coffee, I don't drink tea, I don't like coffee, I don't like tea. I can tolerate tea, but it's not my thing. Like don't like either, never, never have. But I do like to work at coffee shops because it's like it's you know as a writer as a remote worker you're a free, free place to go and yeah but but you don't here's the thing you don't want to go in the coffee shop and just sit there and be you know a mooch you wanna you wanna buy something but if you're going every day you can't just like be eating like these giant muffins every day or like the big pastries because then you're just gonna you know gain freshman hundred you know right. so I would order the cheapest coffee like back home in you know in the U S I would order like the cheapest coffee you know like a two dollar coffee and I'll sit there with it. And I won't drink it. I'll just sit there and let it get cold. But that's like my price of admission to like sit at the table. I, I bought oh, a small coffee. Hilarious. Here I am with my coffee. I'm not drinking it. I'll literally throw it in the trash can outside once I'm out of view of the coffee shop. So that's like the little like ruse I have going. So at this Turkish coffee shop, for whatever reason, I decided I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna drink tea. I'm gonna make make tea my thing because it was more of like a tea shop anyway. So and this it was not busy. It was it was a great place to work. Really quiet, nice people, like good environment. Like hardly anyone was there. So I would go and I'd set up my laptop. I maybe did this for like a couple of weeks we're talking about, like when I first got there. And I, it's like green apple tea is the thing I would always order, green apple tea. And I like, this is going to make me sound like I just fell off the turnip truck, but I like don't know how to, I, I didn't know how tea works. Like I didn't get tea. So what they gave me was uh, the teapot with the water in it and the tea bag, which was like kind of like half in, half out. And then they gave me this big cup like kind of an, in an ornate looking um, container because it's like Turkish of sugar of like brown sugar with it. But it was like big, not sugar cubes, but like these big sugar, like pearls almost. 
And I thought that that was the T. So, <laughs> oh man. And the reason I thought that was because I would drink, I would pour the tea, you know, from the teacup into the, um, into like my, my cup. And it, it, it just tasted like warm water. I, I think I had to let the tea bag like soak more or like do the dabbing thing. And it, it just wasn't, it didn't taste like anything. So I was like, well, what else do I have here? What are my other um, instruments? Well, here I have this, this thing that must be tea. So I would just shovel this sugar, the brown sugar into my, cup so you're just drinking sugar water is what you're i would finish the entire thing i would literally finish the entire cup of sugar right and i would ask for more and it just cost them money (laughs) right i think tea actually tea actually did get absorbed after like i was sitting there for a while so i think it was like tea mixed with sugar by the end of it but i was pretty much i would ask i was like oh i would finish a whole container of sugar and i'd be like oh that was pretty good tea like can i have can i have some more more tea please and the guy would look at me and be like Okay, sure. Oh my god! No. And I was thinking, why is is this is this weird? Am I should I do you not get refills on tea? So I and I'd go home and I'd be like all like awake and hyper and I'd be like, wow, that must be some strong tea. Oh my god! And so at one point I got kind of suspicious for some reason and I I took a picture of like the setup. I sent it to my friend back home and I was like, is this how you drink tea? <laughs> and she's like, no, like you're just drinking sugar. Like that's sugar. And I, never, I still, I still, to my credit, I've never seen sugar like presented in that way before. But anyway, I really have no excuse. Like I'm an idiot. That was one of the dumbest things I've ever done. I never went back there after I, I realized it because I just was too ashamed to, to show my face there. But that's my story with tea and trying to work out of a coffee shop. It's so funny because it's not even a language barrier that caused the misunderstanding. It was just pure <laughs> ignorance on your part. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I still do the coffee thing. I still go to coffee shops here, get the small coffee, don't drink it, throw it away. That's still my thing. Well, I think, you know, that, and that's a, that's a good, uh, good point for those who may be even just starting to think about traveling and where they're going to work is price of admission for coffee shops. And especially in, in other countries, there's a lot of places that, um, you know, aren't as receptive to people with laptops. Um, France in particular, I found. And one great thing is to ask permission, right? Is, hey, do you mind if I work here? And usually almost everybody says yes, but it's also a good segue into meeting somebody because they're like, oh, well, it's cool that you asked. Um, you know, and even setting an alarm, um, a, an alarm once an hour just to go buy something that it's, it's like, it really, really goes a long way um, into them being more receptive when you come back the next day. So. I was going to say that I, the, the only complaint I've really had from people when I go work in coffee shops is that like the baristas, especially if it's a busy place, they don't always want you to just buy one coffee and sit there for exactly. four hours. Yeah. Some places don't care. A lot of places honestly don't don't care. But if it's a if it's, if it's a small place with that's really busy. Like, yeah, if you buy it, just buy something periodically. They'll be they'll be much cooler to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. It's uh, nice chatting. Hopefully, there were some nuggets there for your listeners. And um, bon voyage. All right, that was an awesome interview with Drew. Crazy story. Probably the longest single story we've had on the uh, on the show so far. But I think it was worth it. Got a lot of great takeaways. Never look at TSA in the same light again. That's for sure. And I think the first takeaway that comes to my mind is if you're going to have a packed travel schedule, you're going to some countries that might be considered sketchy, have an alibi, have a, have maybe prepared to explain yourself. I agree. I think that 
what he said in that story is something that I'm sure a lot of people that are a lot sketchier than Drew have had to go through and have had to pull a story out of their ass. But Drew actually wasn't doing anything inherently wrong uh, to be questioned like that. He's just somebody that buys a lot of one-way tickets and travels to a lot of countries that uh, most Americans will never visit. So that in itself was enough to raise alarm and get TSA on his back. And so, yeah, having a, a legit reason to be there. And also one little nugget that he shared in there is that now when he comes back to the U.S., he always allows extra time on his layovers uh, on an arrival international flight back to the country, which I think is a great idea, regardless of whether or not you are, you know, heading from Turkey or or somewhere else that might be on the quote unquote list. Yeah, and it just gives you some peace of mind. And the other, the other, the funny thing is, how many people that are actually sketchy are they letting just go right by while they're detaining? This this kid Drew, friends, <laughs> just interrogating him and probing him in in in, in an uncomfortably intimate manner. Right. And like Tim, once you know, if I if I'm not mistaken, you tried to bring a, a big giant hunting knife with you and through TSA. People like you, sketchy people like you, the, the innocent folks like Drew are the ones being detained. Come on. Well, yeah, it's funny because he you know he subtly hinted at some of the racial profiling that he noticed when he was being held by TSA, and like it's funny. I will say that like the safest I've ever felt on a flight was on an international flight from New York to Doha, Qatar on Qatar Airways, where I was probably the only white person on the flight and definitely the only white male on the flight. And I felt completely at ease. I was surrounded by Muslim families. I was surrounded by people not speaking English and that have had a completely different life than me. But I felt way more sketched out or upset or on edge on flights where I'm around like an uptight business guy from New York City or something like that. It's like <laughs> being a dick to a stewardess. I think that's that's the Colorado in you coming out, though. But what you don't know is that all of those people on that flight to Qatar were super sketched out by you, the lone white guy, because you were trying to sneak a hunting knife onto the flight. Right. That's why nobody talked to me. Yeah. It wasn't because I was monolingual and couldn't you know communicate to them verbally it was that they were all too scared yeah oh man um another takeaway that i took out of that is that when when he was talking about how he's made it happen for his partner and him to live in spain uh for a year or longer at a time the takeaway to me there is that there is always a way you know if if you can work remotely and you want to live somewhere else and you don't want to have to do a visa run every 60 days put a little time into research be able to make a long-term commitment to to making a visa work, and you probably will be able to do that. Yeah, we're not going to get into the details of how visas work, uh, because partly because I have absolutely no idea um, in terms of residency, work visas, tourist visas, whatever. Um, it's incredibly complicated. I think it's definitely worth it if you're the kind of person who has the patience and the, the drive to want to sit down and do that. Um, citizenship itself is obviously only open to people with certain who meet very, very specific requirements, certain bloodlines. Every country is different. I've personally looked into Portuguese citizenship and it is an absolute nightmare to even know if I qualify or not. So it is nothing short of trying to figure out calculus if you're, if you majored in history, but I think it's worth it if you're, if you have the time and the, uh, the, the willpower. Right. Right. I agree. The last takeaway, when we talked about traveling 
and kind of meeting, performing friendships on the road and meeting new people is a way of almost reinventing yourself. You know, like Tim goes to Bali, he drops the suit at the airport, he takes up the uh, Hawaiian shirt. Right, right. I agree. And, and, uh, you know, this, this interview is kind of proof of that in a way, because, you know, I met Drew in Bali and we became friends because we were in the same co-living and co-working space. Uh, and I travel in senses like that, where you're completely removing yourself from your comfort zone and going somewhere that on the other side of the world, it diversifies your friend group in a way. Like I, I love my friends to death, you know, back home, don't get me wrong, but in, in a lot of ways we're the same, you know, we have the same hobbies, we have the same stories, we have the same experiences, you know, like Drew is somebody that has, is, is very different from me in a lot of ways. And like, but we're friends because we went to this place together and had this experience together. And now like, you know, we've stayed in touch for four years. Right. I think one really uh, epic shared experience is worth more, a lot more than knowing someone for years, but just kind of going out to the local bar with them and hanging out and doing, you know, not a whole lot. Yeah. Well, this, this one was an ode to, uh, an ode to travel friends, I would say is the overarching theme beyond, uh, beyond Drew's crazy TSA story. Yeah, for sure. That's about all the uh, takeaways that I can handle myself. So we'll close this one out. Thank you again so much for listening to another episode of No Blackout Dates. Make sure to smash that five-star rating. Don't just hit it, smash it. Oh. And let us know what you think about TSA and tell us your favorite TSA experience, least favorite TSA experience. Anything you got to say, we want to hear it. Let us know. No Blackout Dates pod at gmail.com. We will catch you next week.